Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass? So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to Jerusalem Unplugged, the only podcast dedicated to Jerusalem, its history, and its people. Your host, Roberto Matza, will bring you guests discussing their relationship with the Holy City. A journey through history, society, feelings, and hopes for the future. Follow the podcast on all social media platforms at Jerusalem Unplugged. Welcome to Jerusalem Unplugged, the podcast dedicated to Jerusalem, its history, and its people. I'm your host, Roberto Mazza, and today for this bonus episode, a summer episode before the beginning of the second season, your guest is George, or Yorgos, Soros. George is an anthropologist, and his work investigates the socio-cultural relations between Christian communities in Jerusalem with a particular focus on the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. George is part of the international community of the Holy Sepulchre, ICOHS, which has been created to provide practical support for Christian communities in the Holy Land. George also recently was appointed a deacon by the Greek Orthodox Church in the UK. Congratulations, George. And today we'll talk about the Church, uh, of the Holy Sepulchre, its history, but more importantly, of the relationship between the clergy and the people within the church itself. George, welcome to Jerusalem Unplugged. Thank you, Roberto. I'm a fan of the series, so thanks very much for the invitation. Thank you. Good to hear that. George, first question. What is your Jerusalem? In other words, as I was asked to my guest, what is your connection? with the city? Jerusalem um, figured very uh, sort of vividly in my family growing up uh, as, as the holy city, you know, very much dictated by the religious sort of dimension of the city. Um, as it is customary for Orthodox Greeks um, and other Christians, of course, people travel to the Holy Land as, as part of a pilgrimage. Um, However, although family members went to Jerusalem, I never joined them, so I never followed them. My connection with Jerusalem goes back 
starts basically from 2014 when I embarked on PhD research in anthropology, looking at life in a major shrine of Christianity, the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. Uh, and it, it actually, it all started two years earlier at the end of my master's program when I was writing my dissertation on the use of religious items in religion, uh, the, the use of items, artifacts in Christianity. And my brother, who had just returned from a pilgrimage to Jerusalem, walked in the room saying, George, as an anthropologist, you should definitely go to, to Jerusalem and, and look at the be behavior of religious people there. You know, faith is everywhere. It's fascinating. And I, I remember spending the rest of the day looking up, you know, online, researching more about Jerusalem and, and potential future research there. Um, so this eventually led me to study the social and cultural relations of, uh, you know, custodians in the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, but also the lay Christians outside in the neighborhood of the old city how they interact um, and um, if there are any differences with, with you know, people in, in, in the institutions. And uh, as you know, being an anthropologist, I'm interested in looking, in, in understanding people's practices, what people do, how they do things, and if the way they do things actually tells us anything about how they relate to others. Um, and when, you know, the Church of the Holy Sepulchre offers a unique opportunity because it is um, a unique juncture between ancient Christian communities and demonstrates the diversity and plurality of Christianity. Um, I'm sure you know that there's six different ancient Christian denominations in the Church and they all worship side by side. The Greek Orthodox, they're called Greeks. The Roman Catholics, um, they have the Franciscan Custodia and they're called Latins. And also the Armenian Orthodox, they have the Armenian Brotherhood of St. James. They're called and they're called locally Armenians. The major communities, but also the Oriental Orthodox, you know, the Copts, the Syriacs and the Ethiopian that, that live outside on the roof of the church. So from an ethnographic point of view, it's, it's an amazing place to, 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 be, uh, to be doing research. So that's how, uh, that's how I'm connected to the city. I went there to do research and I was, I was lucky to get the funding from the British Academy, um, which allowed me to stay there for, for almost two years. I think your brother was right. Uh, <laughs> that's definitely the, the work of an anthropologist to Take some time and observe people's behavior over there. I want to ask you something. You, you obviously, in your work, you refer to people, but we also have to refer to the building. And I was wondering if you can give us a sense of what is the Holy Sepulchre? I mean, many may know about it, but in time I learned that sometimes places are just uh, recognized by a name, but people don't know necessarily uh, much about the building itself, the history behind it, and what it represents for Christians, but not only for Christians. So, of course, yeah, the, the Church of the Holy Sepulchre um, is basically a big 
church complex that um, contains the sites that most Christians believe that are the sites of crucifixion and burial of Jesus of Nazareth, which is the leader of Christianity. Um, so people hear about this place in the gospel when they go to the church and at some point in their life they will make a pilgrimage to Jerusalem to connect with these places and see for themselves those places that you know the leader of Christianity walked and lived and preached and you know died and resurrected. So there's a, it's a big church complex and within the church there's different sacred localities, different shrines and the custodians, the communities that live in the church, so the Greek Orthodox, the Catholics, the Armenians and the Oriental Orthodox, they all have rights of possession and usage of those shrines, the sacred localities. So it is it's one big place that has smaller, very kind of different places within it. I wanted to ask you something about not just the building, but also the different ways people, you know, Christians of belonging to different denominations look at, at the church. Uh, I'm not an expert on, on, on Christianity. I'm not an expert on, on the uh, Church of the Holy Sepulchre. But uh, my impression is that when Christians visit uh, the church, they do behave differently according to what may be their uh, sort of uh, belonging to, you know, to what church they may belong to. Is that a correct assessment? Thank you, Robert. That's an interesting question. When pilgrims arrive in Jerusalem, they are faced with a brutal reality. Because they know these places through their imagination from what they've been hearing in the gospel or whatever they've saw online. But as other you know, people in anthropology, the study of pilgrims and other uh, academics and scholars have mentioned, there is a kind of a, the encounter with the reality is sometimes harsh. For example, a lot of people read in the Gospels, in the, in the Bible, that the site of crucifixion, the Golgotha, is on a hill. So they, when, they, when they arrive in the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, they try to find that hill which is probably somewhere outside. However, the hill, which, you know, it's basically within the church complex. So, yeah, the, so this is, the, this is the side, the material side of the whole thing. But also they encounter other Christians that they don't really know. Um, and this is especially, uh, you know, seen with Protestant Christians that arrive in the Church of the Holy Sepulchre and they witness another kind of Christianity. Uh, they witness people that have long beards and crosses and they are dressed in various different, uh, you know, clothing. And um, they are also Christian as well. So if I understand your que question correctly, you know, it is, it's a very diverse place and, and people, um, while they are in a highly sort of an emotionally charged situation where they encounter the holy places for them, they also have to sort of, you know, reconcile with the fact that other Christians are also there, part of it.
Yeah, and I was wondering about this relationship, which is also part of your work. So how do the different uh, Christian groups interact with each other within the Holy Sepulchre? I mean, uh, we know that there is something called uh, the status quo of the Holy Places, which some sort of dictates what can be done within the space. Uh, but I'm, I'm interested about the relationship between people, not just in relation to the building itself. So in, in the church, diverse Christian faiths, they come into contact uh, via their custodian groups um, in various ways. So you can see Orthodox priests, you know, processing from one shrine to the other. You can see Catholic pilgrims arriving. Uh, with their own, you know, group, um, Russian pilgrims or Ethiopian women dressed in uh, in their own prayer souls. You, you can see the Greek monks standing in front of the holy of, of the edicule, you know, the little the, the the chapel enclosing the tomb of Jesus. Um, so this happens at once, you know. They attend various types of service and they process around shrines. Um, now, denominational boundaries between the custodians, um, you know, they, they are they're firmly maintained uh, from the from the status quo. You know, status quo legislation has very clearly defines who who do, who who does what and what shrine belongs to who belongs in quotation. Um, but you know, this is just the basic a basic agreement each of the communities they have their own extensive notes of how they do things and sometimes the you know their understanding is different so um relations can become tense you know the various christian communities are famous for the for the petty squabbling i'm sure you've you know we, we've all seen Greek monks feuding with Armenian clerics over the cleaning of such and such window. Um, so the coexistence is peace, peaceful, but disputes also happen. Now, my understanding is that people don't fight, you know, they don't fight because of differences, theological differences about who Christ is. Um, I would say, you know, people get tired. It's like a big, it's a, like a big community. It's different communities, but it's also one big community. And sometimes they do come together as well. We, we, this is a separate discussion we can have. Um, but they, they, they kind of get, get tired with each other. We have to consider that about 4,000, 4,000 or 5,000 tourists and pilgrims are present in the church daily. I mean, that's before the pandemic. And they all as I said, they are emotionally charged and they also have demands. You know, they want to understand things. They, they want to ask questions. And this, this is only a few people, like a few clerics that are responsible for those shrines, the same people every day. So you understand tensions can become, uh, can, can erupt between them. Um, and I, I can give you an example if you want me to. So, in my research, I, I'm, I'm really interested in the use of objects, as I said. So I took a material sort of stance in understanding how things are, are done in the church. So in 2015, the Israeli Ministry of Tourism gave permission to 
um, Egyptian Christians to travel to Jerusalem. And this is um, important because up until then, Egyptians could not travel to Israel because of the history of the two countries. So when these people arrived, naturally, um, and I say naturally because anthropologists working with, uh, you know, in, in religion, they tend to see that people want to take something back when they go to a shrine. Uh, it's something, you know, it has to, it is the materiality of the place that you want to, you, we, we embed meaning to objects, right? So we want to take something back because it's meaningful. So if you enter the edicule, there's nothing for you to, to take. You know, there's just a marble slab and walls and icons, but they're all fixed and there's nothing you can actually take with you. However, there was, there was a pot on the uh, tomb of Jesus that has um, sand in there. So you can light your candle and you can fix it in the sand. You can stick it in the sand and it stays there. So people wanted to take something back and they couldn't find anything else. So they started taking the sand from the pot. Um, and, they, and suddenly you could see like sand everywhere, people trying to put it in their pockets. Uh, and uh, you can imagine how furious the monks became because all of a sudden the place was just full of sand. And just this is just an example to, to give you an understanding of how easily people can get um, upset. You know, they, they can just... It's, it's sometimes it's too much. I found it fascinating. I, I didn't know about the sand. I I was aware people were trying to get, uh, you know, even pieces of marbles or anything, grating, uh, you know, basically the structure all, all around. Uh, I, I didn't know about the sand, which I found it. Uh, well, I, I guess it's part of what you mentioned. People want to bring back something. I'm curious about uh, one one behavior that I noticed many times. Uh, when you enter the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, you bump into uh, what it's called the Stone of Yunction, uh, which is this kind of a pinkish stone, um, which is really at the very entrance. And often uh, you get to see plenty of people, mostly women, I would say, uh, with uh, bags, uh, you know, full of uh, clothing or other items. And my understanding is that they're basically touching that material in order to bring it back home, some sort of a looking for a blessing. I, I was wondering if you if you know more about it, how that uh, ritual started and uh, what is connected to. Yes, that's exactly right up my street. So basically what happens there in the Orthodox Christianity, because you, you would notice that it's mostly Orthodox that do that, or let's say Eastern Christians, and that includes some Catholics as well, but definitely the um, Coptic, the Copts and the Oriental Orthodox as well. So divine grace, so the grace of God is imagined, is understood as having two abilities. One is that has can be it can be transferred right and it can also be incorporated right so incorporability and transferability so what people do there they take mostly um, clothes from a sick relative and as this is now the marble slab that Christians believe that the body of their leader Jesus Christ was was um, was placed there after being taken down from the cross it's a holy place so they they rub they rub the the sick uh, the the clothes from the sick relative on there 
thinking that the grace of God now is incorporated on this item and they can take it back and give it to this sick person. They will do that with as well with candles or with icons or whatever they have with them that they can take back. So yeah, that's the, the first, it's quite a, an interesting, uh, you know, experience because you, the moment you walk in the church, you see people rubbing things on the, on the marble. And uh, if, you, if you haven't seen that before, it's quite a spectacle. It is indeed. And, and I've seen people sometimes like uh, taken aback, like uh, try to understand what's going on. I, I was wondering, are there other places within the, the compound that are similar where people are either trying to get something or, you know, bringing something from home and to connect it to to the place itself. So you, you were talking about this concept of transferability or is that the unique place within the church? That's one of the shrines. The same happens. And I think the reason for, for, for this being one of the shrines is because it's, it's very accessible, you know. The rocks of Golgotha, the site of crucifixion, they are basically enclosed in a, in a glass, so you can't really touch these rocks. And um, as you said a bit earlier, this has been a, a tradition for most pilgrims. They would take something back. So that's, that's how the original cave was basically... Um, it was all the rock was chipped away through the th through the centuries because people would just take a bit of, of, a, of a rock with them. So that's when the crusaders placed the um, placed the marble slab, and then on top of that slab there was another marble slab. Um, a few years ago there was actually an excavation. I don't know if you followed. There was a research done from the University of Athens and other universities. Um, so this is the most accessible place. That's why people do it there. They do other things as well. I've, I've seen a lot of different things. One is uh, one that I'm familiar with from the Orthodox side of things is people take candles and they um, they light them in, in from the, from the from the fire uh, placed on the on the tube of Jesus, and then they blow them and they take these candles with them. So they take them back home, and when there's a problem, you know, at the time of of need, they light them again and they pray. Um, and that's also similar to the Holy Fire, which is, you know, a big feast for Jerusalem's Christianity. People uh, light their candle, candlesticks and then they take them back home again. They keep them in a specific place at home, next to the icons, if they're Orthodox, or other sort of corners, special corners. Um, this is two examples I can think of. I'm very curious about the Holy Fire. I mean, I talked about this with other guests from from different perspectives, but uh, allow me to say this. You're an insider. I mean, you also know better the Greek Orthodox community. And I was wondering also through your through your eyes as an anthropologist, if you can tell us about this this ritual, which is very powerful and very, connecting for uh, local Christians in Jerusalem, but also in the whole of Palestine. Yes, the, the holy fire, which is me personally, I think it's the wrong term. It's actually holy light, uh, both in Greek and Arabic is is a light, is understood as a light. It's not, it's not about the fire. And it, light is a metaphor, you know, in Christianity. Jesus Christ says, I'm the light, said, I'm the light of the world. Um, you know, there's uh, different kinds of light, the light of transfiguration, the light of Pentecost. 
is being used very, uh, very creatively and vividly in Orthodox theology light. So Christianity comes together really with this feast because all of the different branches all interact in a formal way in this ritual. Normally, I mean, it's led by the Orthodox, but all different branches interact. Um, normally, the Orthodox are very exclusive when it comes to to Christianity. So we we say we possess the truth, and you know, there's different understandings of the same thing. However, in this on this particular occasion, different clerics dressed you know dressed up with uh, with their cassocks and the the formal vestments interacted. For example, the um, Oriental Orthodox, so the Copts and the Syriacs approach the Greek Orthodox Patriarch and take his blessing to partake in the in the in the ceremony. And then the Orthodox Patriarch gives gives them back the the light. You know, they, he lights their candles, and then they then spread the light to their uh, to their to, you know to the people in attendance. Um, so the, the the belief is that. And there's a there's a lot of books actually that talk about this and with historical accounts there've been people are witnessing that in the past that um, there's a special service for light emanating from the tomb of Christ that then this light spreads in the people you know it's shared between the Christians in attendance and lately you know uh, people have gone to great extents uh, for example there's Aeroplanes that come from Greece and from other religious countries to take the light and then take it back home. But you know, theologically, if that's viable, I'm not quite sure. I'm not the you know the right person to ask as well. We, uh, you know, people, I, th I think there's also the understanding that in every church there's holy light. You know, every altar is the is a tomb of Christ. That's a separate discussion. But it's it's an amazing feast and. Um, for me, as an anthropologist, primarily, you know, I, I would say it was very interesting to see different people coming together and interacting, especially the clerics. I mean, for the for the lay Christians, there's no differences. People come together every day, and I'm, I'm arguing this in my book that that will come back that, that will come out, come out later, you know, probably next year. You know, the, the lay Christians don't say I'm Catholic or I'm Orthodox. And even when you ask them, are you Catholic, are you Orthodox? They basically say we, we are Christian. So they project a unified identity, sort of um, we are Christians. And I think that helps them with their collective standing in in, a, in the society, because remember, Christians are a minority within a minority. So in the Holy Fire, in the Holy Light ceremony, you, you, people come together and um, it's really amazing to see. We are going to take a short break. Thank you for listening. And remember to join our Facebook page, Twitter and Instagram account. If you have a story about Jerusalem that you want to share or someone that you want me to interview, please get in touch. Enjoy the rest of the show. And since you mentioned your manuscript, uh, I really want to ask you about it. So. You have an upcoming book, uh, which is still in the form of a manuscript, and essentially it's investigating the uh, sort of the relationship between the clergy in the Holy Sepulchre. So I, I was wondering if you can give us a sense of, uh, you know, what's going on in there at a clergy level. 
Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Hi, this is Paige from Giggly Squad, and I want to talk to you about Splash Refresher and my water intake. Okay, so you guys obviously know that I'm a hydrated girly, but sometimes when you drink that much water it starts to just taste bland and you're just like, I need something to spice it up. That's why I love Splash Refresher. It has zero sugar, zero calories, and it's a splash of sweetness. And they come in five different flavors. They're so good. Wild berry, acai grape, pineapple mango, lemon, and mandarin orange. My favorite is the wild berry because I just just love a berry. So if you're like me and you're drinking water all day, then try Splash Refresher. It's going to absolutely change your water game and it's good for you. So, yeah, what I mean, what what I wanted to see is how boundaries and borders are shaped and maintained and and crossed among um, Christians. Um, That question did not drive my research when I arrived in Jerusalem, I, I didn't have a specific question that kind of drive my, my, my research. And that was that was really the advice of my supervisor, Glenn Bowman. That was a great advice. And he basically um, echoed the words of a famous anthropologist, uh, Malinowski, who said, really, let yourself sort of, you know, let the, the, the proceedings and the, whatever happens in the field drive you. And that's particularly important for an anthropologist because in, in anthropology, the, the person is the primary in- instrument of research, right? We, we are we're doing the research. We're trying to see the world, the Jerusalem in this case, through the eyes of our uh, informants or the people we study, or the people we live with. My access point was the Greek Orthodox community through links and connections I had from Greece and also because I knew how to carry myself as a believer so straight ahead, um, I could I could establish connections w- with with the custodians. I would say that things have started changing with regards to the relationship between the, the clerics, and this is because the reality in the Middle East, the reality in the Holy Land, is such that um, sort of forces people to come together. 
in order to maintain their collective standing. And there are challenges, uh, as you know, with regards to the Holy Sepulchre, with, with regards to Christians in the Middle East, with regards to Christians in the Holy Land, in both the Israeli and Palestinian societies and the Jordanian societies, le to a lesser extent. But as I said, it's a minority within a minority. So the, the different challenges push, push the institutions, push the, the leaders to come together and collaborate more, which was not the case in the past, especially during the Ottoman years. Under the Ottoman era, uh, clergy did not really cooperate much. Of that, I'm sure. <laughs> I, I personally collected plenty of files about uh, a specific incident that occurred in 1904. And I've been thinking about really writing about it, where eventually what we had is literally a shooting within the Holy Sepulchre and people died, monks died. But you, you talked about the question of borders and actually that incident, uh, I mean, originated because of some borders that were crossed. It was very much about a ladder that someone took and shouldn't have done that. But the whole point was crossing borders. Now, I understand that you didn't really research those borders, but I always had the feeling, and maybe because I know the place, that when you walk around the Holy Sepulchers, there are borders, and they might be invisible, but you're actually crossing them. And I, and I was wondering if you had the same feeling in the time you spent in the Holy Sepulchre. So, as I mentioned earlier, different um, the communities have sort of rights of ownership of different sacred localities in the church. However, some places like the um, the edicule, the, the the chapel enclosing the, the tomb of Jesus, are shared between the communities. So, although the Greek Orthodox have rights of ownership, as it is called. There are specific times in the day where they have to give, sort of, they have to um, leave the edicule, and the edicule is free for use by the, the Franciscans and by the Armenians. And that's where things can become problematic, uh, and that's where borders are crossed. Right, boundaries is more of a theoretical. In my work, I understand boundaries as a theoretical sort of uh, understanding, a theoretical sort of concept. Borders is their sort of uh, territorial manifestation, right, on, on, on land. So that's where, in the chains of the of control of different shrines that are shared, things can go wrong. Say one community stays stays longer, or they refuse to leave, or they leave, but they they leave someone behind, uh, staying there, and the next one that comes uh, to to use the edicule, they don't like that because it's they see it as a breach of the status quo agreement. So that's where, yeah, that's what borders can be seen as being crossed. Again, the, you know, there's different feasts in the calendar year. There's so many, there's layers of complexity because they might appear, everything might appear fine, but people have an understanding of where these borders are. And for example, when, when there's an Orthodox worship, there's a, there's a candle that is placed uh, opposite the edicule. Until that candle is removed, the Armenians that follow cannot approach. So that candle indicates orthodox control of the edicule. Um, so you will see around three o'clock, for example, in the night, the, you know, a monk would come and take the candle, and then you'll see the Armenians approaching. So they, they've got the different 
sort of signals and different um, uh, land, landmarks, let's say, markers perhaps, to indicate control and to indicate to, to communicate. But they also they also talk, you know, they, as I said, the coexistence is mostly peaceful. I'm curious about the, the edical because uh, for those who have never been and they may approach for the first time the, the church itself, I mean, even the edicule is divided, where essentially three quarters of, of the tomb are covered, let's say, or owned by the Greek Orthodox Church. And then you have a smaller side uh, that is uh, controlled by the Copts. And I was wondering if you ever had a chance to observe how people react to that division, but also to see how how is the relationship between the two communities who are, you know, controlling the side, but at the same time, one is bigger than the other in very practical terms. Yeah, the situation is really interesting. So, as you said, the Coptic community, the Coptic custodians control the, um, what is basically, so if, if, if we look at the edicule as, uh, as a tomb where a body was placed, the, the Copts control what would be the part where the head was um, uh, placed. The head of, of of Jesus, right? So they have that side of the edicule, and the the, the other one, the the, th the three quarters of the of the rest of it, is under Orthodox control. So they don't see they don't really see each other because they are on the opposite ends, right? So the Coptic community worships on the left end, um, and then the the, the 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 Orthodox on the other side. There are moments where the communities have to make a circle. You know, they have to make a procession around the edicule, and that's where it's interesting because then. If the Orthodox are processing, the Copts have to kind of withdraw a little bit to leave some space for, for the Orthodox priests to go around. And then um, I have never seen the Copts going the other side. There might be on another occasion where Orthodox are not around. But um, they have to make room for each other, really. And I have to say, most like the, the conversation I'm having with other academics about the situation in the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, sometimes there's recognition that this model of coexistence Although it's complex, and although you know we see disputes happening, it actually works because they, they, it has allowed Christ, very different, diverse Christians to, to coexist for so for so long. And um, you know the status quo was confirmed internationally, and then really the British helped a lot because when they took over uh, Jerusalem, they said they asked the question. They said, "How you guys have been, have managed to survive here?" They said, "We have this kind of agreement." And said, okay, whatever you've been doing, we will we'll carry on. We will keep. So that again, that confer it was another important confirmation that allowed the communities to to carry on. Um, there are also cases, however, I would have to say, um, where both in the modern states of Jordan and Israel periods, uh, the status quo has not been maintained, or they've been sort of um, uh, exceptions, let's say. So. That's that's you know th this is these are the challenges that I refer to that the Christian communities have, but mostly um, this model of coexistence survives and you know continues to exist and helps the Christians to to live together. Most of these churches, but not all of them, are connected to countries. The Greek Orthodox Church, obviously connected uh, to Greece, but also to Russia and uh, other let's say, orthodox countries, obviously the Copts, mostly with Egypt, uh, the Ethiopians. I wonder if there is some sort of a nationalist 
international dimension here that also is visible through how people behave and how relate to each other, both in the lay, but also in, in you know, with the clergy? That's a great question. Yes, I mean, if if we look at this layer of interpretation of the situation in the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, the Church is a platform of international agreements between countries. So, as you said, yeah, Greece is behind the Orthodox, um, the Orthodox group. However, I have to say, the the Greek Orthodox Patriarchate is a local institution. It's very different from the rest of the Catholic uh, and Armenian churches because. You know, it has been there. For example, in the in the Catholic um, custodia, you will see the, the the flag of the Vatican. But um, you know, in, in the Patriarchate, although sometimes the the Greek flag appears, you know, <laughs> recently people have been have been arguing that you know this is really a local institution because the Patriarchate, the, the people in the Patriarchate trace their existence to the first Christian communities. But yeah, this is a, a separate discussion. Essentially, there are agreements between nations, um, and this this cont contributes to the complexity of the site. But also, I would say, has protected, in a sense, um, you know, the communities there. But you know, the church is also a local parish because you know we, you you have the different custodian groups, and you have people coming over from Greece and Italy, or you know, Brazil, or other people to serve in the custodian groups. But you also have the Orthodox Christians and the Catholic Christians of the city that go in the church. So it's also a local parish. It, it's also a museum. You know, there's so many international tourists, that, secular, that just come come to the church out of curiosity to see how, you know, what this is and, and how people interact. So there's different layers of interpretation of the same site. I'm curious about something because obviously, you know, this is like the sacred, uh, probably the most sacred place for Christianity, if not for all Christians, but certainly for the, the largest number. But it's also a place where is which is visited by uh, Israeli Jews and Arabs, Muslims, and not only Arabs. I mean, just Muslims in general, really. I was wondering, how do they relate to the place? Uh, do they create a connection? Is there some sort of relationship with the uh, with the Christians, or they just uh, uh, visitors? Um, thank you for this. I think what I've what I've experienced when I was there, you know, I spent a lot of hours in the church for 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 about two years. I, I very rarely saw Israelis coming in. They would come like if there was a significant event in Jerusalem, and they would perhaps drive from Tel Aviv to attend like a concert or something else. Then they would probably at some point fit a visit in the in the Holy Sepulcher into their schedule. But I would see that I would say that the, you know mostly you, you see a lot of Christians, of course, from from across the world. You see Muslim Muslim people coming in um, because you know Jesus is mentioned in the Quran. As, um, a lot of Muslim come in. Uh, of course, they they, they won't. You know, they, primarily they will go to Al-Aqsa and other Muslim sites of the city. But at some point, they, you you will also see them in the church. For the Israelis, I think it's more, um, you know, Christianity. This is this is my understanding, right? I'm, I might be totally wrong. For my connection with Israelis, I, I would say Christianity is a, is quite an exotic subject. I'm not quite sure how much people know about Christianity. They know, of course, they know a few things. 
But I think there's an element of um, exoticism, you know, it's very different to see a priest, for example, doing what they're doing, uh, going around. Of course, if you trace the roots of Christianity, they're very um, Jewish, but that's a separate discussion. And I, I think also it doesn't help, I'm afraid to say, that the narratives from the Israeli tour guides, when it comes to disputes, when it comes to the ladder, you know, there's certain points that are interesting, that and they, th those are sort of promoted to make the experience interesting for for those, you know, for the guiding experience. But for my, um, when I spend time with Israeli guides and some of them, of course, yeah, those ones, those ones I, I was exposed to in, in in the yard or in other tours that I participated, the narrative is very much um, about the fights. You know, it's about the ladder. It's about the holy light, the ceremony, you know, the, the juicy part, the interesting parts. I think I share your view in a sense that knowing uh, a bit of Israeli society and understanding a little bit of it, it it's such a composite and diverse society, which it's hard to generalize. Uh, like I, I understood that a lot of uh, Russian Jews do often visit because uh, somehow it resonates with them. You know, they may, they may have been Jewish, uh, in terms of identity, but really also they, the Russians, and so they're very familiar with the narratives of the Holy Sepulchre. But you're absolutely right in a sense that it's it's exotic and uh, it's uh, little known, and not many actually do visit uh, the, the place itself. And and I found it interesting that many also cannot see the connection between uh, Yeshua Bar Yosef, Jesus, son of Joseph, who was obviously Jewish, and, and Christianity. I want to ask you something about uh, relations outside the Holy Sepulchre. Uh, we talked about uh, before the interview, you also are interested in Christian Muslim relations. So I was wondering, what is your understanding of, particularly in the contemporary, uh, of this set of relations that outside many see as problematic? And in fact, many, uh, particularly in the Western world, see uh, the relationship between Christian and Muslims only in terms of a potential conflict. Yeah, we have seen this in other parts of the Middle East. Um, I would say that's not the case in Israel. Uh, perhaps, you know, the, the difference is a different situation in, in, in Israel and also in Palestine as well. There's, you know, the different interaction. Um, when, when I, uh, with with Merav Mak, uh, who you know, we said earlier that uh, Israelis find Christianity exotic, but there's also amazing individuals that have a great understanding of Christianity, like Iska Harani or Merav Mak or Salim Tamari, and others, and they they basically do amazing work. And when I was in the, in the Hebrew University, uh, we sort of did field trips in the West Bank and tried to see interesting places where Christians and Muslim interact on a religious level, which is it stands on the exact opposite pole of of what we know about uh, Christianity and, and Islam. And there's this fascinating place in the Al-Hadr village where there's, a, there's the Orthodox Church of St. George. And, you know, St. George is is um, venerated in Islam. In many, in many parts of the Muslim world, it is understood as being uh, a synthetic, a syncretistic figure of Hadr, which is like... Um, a saintly figure mentioned in the Quran, 
um, which is basically the same with with Saint George, who you know who is a protector of the Palestinian people, but also in other countries, you know, it, it's 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 a well-known person, a well-known saint in the Christian Church. So you you know you would see up until recently, Muslim people would go to this church on the feast of Saint George to pray to him ask for like his support find a woman or find a man or find a job you know any sort of um, need any help they need with, with any problems that's that's an interesting practice which i was i was also able to see on the feast of the day but you know with this religious polarization it's it's one of those habits where one of those traditions that starts to fade becoming more and more difficult for 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 these things to happen uh, you know religious pluralism has been something of the past i think it fades away unfortunately but um yeah i would say that that's an interesting example of christian and muslim coexistence and there's a lot of interesting discussion going on in in scholarship about such sites you know is it is it really a coexistence is it is it a tolerance so people don't really like them being there, but they tolerate them. Yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting to follow this discussion. I have a couple of more questions before we wrap up the interview. And one is very much about you as a scholar and anthropologist. And as you were talking about the Holy Sepulchre and the various uh, denominations, but more importantly, the rituals and also faith, I was wondering, how is your relationship with yourself, meaning you the anthropologist, but also you the ordained deacon? How do you reconcile potential conflict? Yeah, I knew that question would come at some point. <laughs> to be honest, Roberto, I'm not quite sure how to articulate this. Yeah, I'm being totally honest. I will try, though. So when I was in Jerusalem, I hadn't thought about, you know, um, becoming ordained or being, you know, I, I, I am a religious, I was a religious person back, back then as well, but I wasn't, I wasn't thinking of that prospect back then. So if anything, um, the way people interacted in Jerusalem pushed me away from institutionalized religion, if I may say, um, from across the spectrum, you know, in all sides, in all parts of, of religion I'm referring to. Um, so yeah, I would, I, I would, I was an anthropologist until then. Now it's a different situation where um, I see myself as someone who was very lucky to gain a great understanding of diverse Christianity as it as it is played out in Jerusalem. But also, I see I see myself as very lucky and honored by by you know Jesus Christ to to have this calling. And you know, this is now entering a different discussion where. If you hear that voice, you know, to become like a student of, 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 of Christ, it's very difficult. For me, at least, it was very difficult to say no to this. You know, it was very difficult to say, I won't do it. Because I heard, I heard, I heard this sort of calling in a way. I heard that, um, I had that feeling. So I see myself primarily as, as someone who has been blessed with the, you know, the first sort of stage of priesthood. But um, I'm grateful for this great, you know, anthropological knowledge that I was able to to kind of collect, and also th that journey, which is ongoing, of course, because you know I still keep learning about the situation down there and through 
other work I'm currently doing as well and trying to support the Christian communities. So yeah, it's it's as I said, it's still a, a process where I'm trying to understand how how this develops. I, I I'm not obviously clergy. I'm a lay person and I grew up Catholic in in Italy. And I remember in time I became disassociated with, as you said, with the institutional religion in a sense that I saw and heard things that made me feel uncomfortable with, uh, you know, with the church as an institution. And on the other hand, I start appreciating more Jerusalem uh, from a different perspective. And I didn't feel the necessity of necessarily link every place with the story of Christianity and of Jesus, but to understand that faith is different from history in a sense, and they can coexist, but uh, not necessarily they are the same. Uh, but as I said, this was a personal journey. I have more of a professional question now as a last one. You spend a lot of time inside the Holy Sepulchre observing people, and I wonder whether you have ever been encountering some sort of obstacles, objections to your work, difficulties where people question what are you doing here all the time <laughs> i mean think about a, a young person going around asking awkward questions or silly questions like why are you doing this um how do you see yourself or um you know just being there in anthropology we have something called participant observation so you participate but you also you observe you also observe which is a bit of an oxymoron, like how do you participate but also observe? And that kind of movement from participating back to observing gives that unique ability, we believe, in anthropology. And anthropology says that, you know, this is a, it's a movement where the, the ethnographer manages to see but also detach and become so-called objective if, if there's objectivity, right? So... Yeah, people were were all the time. First of all, a lot of people thought that I was um, a kind of a spy, or um, <laughs> I was there to understand something and then provide information to somebody. <laughs> or um, people, if you see, if people see you associating with a particular group in the church, they believe that you are part of this group, so they won't open up so easily. So I had a really hard time to establish connections with Armenians or with, with Catholics in the beginning because I was mostly interacting with the Greek clergy that uh, I could communicate because of my, my um, you know, connections and introductions from other people. So it, it required time to establish uh, trust. Um, but it's very common in, for, for anthropologists to be faced with such questions. And um, I think the passage of time allows for trust to be built and then people would gradually allow 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 you to to you know in their in their um sort of personal sphere and you know allow you to be there when they do things and to be honest we we're here to you know as an anthropologist i could say that for me i was i was really grateful to to my informants you know and i would never expose them you know i was I was just grateful for opening up their houses, their homes, and their minds, and their hearts. I'm not familiar, I'm not sure if you know John Tlil, the man who claimed to be Jerusalem, uh, the famous dentist of the old city, uh, who was also an informal historian. 
And now that I said, now that you asked me that question, I thought of him because he's a very private person, and he doesn't, you know, had it was very difficult difficult for me to, to talk to him in the beginning. He was very suspicious, you know, like, why are you asking these questions and all of that. But then eventually, you know, we established a great relationship, and then he actually went to the other end where he trusted me with a lot of information. Um, that's where, through him, I became interested in the Greek history, the Greek, you know, the the the, the, the history of the Greek community in Jerusalem, which established, it was established in the Ottoman years, and it reached its peak in the 1948, just before the war. I mean, um, so yeah, that's another example of of you know the late Dr. John Tlil, who, after a while, we became really close friends. This was George Soros, social anthropologist who had his PhD from the University of Kent. And uh, while we await uh, his manuscript about the relations between clergy and the Holy Sepulchre, George, thank you so much. It was great to talk to you, Roberto. Thank you very much for this invitation. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Jerusalem Unplugged. This podcast is currently commercial free. There are no ads. The only possibility to stay this way is for you to please let your friends, your family and others who may be interested in listening to Jerusalem Unplugged know about this podcast. Let's increase the audience and let's keep the podcast commercial free. Thank you for listening. Until the next one. Hello, this is Danny Pellegrino, host of the Everything Iconic podcast, and I'm here to tell you all about Splash Refresher, because hydration is mandatory, but boring is not. Now, I love my water, but if I don't spice it up, I'm not going to finish what I took out of the fridge. That's why I love my Splash Refresher, which is flavorful, delicious, bright, hydrating, and zero calories. The wild berry flavor is my fave. No, wait, is the pineapple mango flavor my fave? You know what? All five craveable Splash Refresher flavors are my fave because they're so delicious. So get hydrated and enjoy it with Splash Refresher. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.